The toleration of contradiction is health. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health, and strong relationships, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. Here with our guest, Johanna Dobrich, a licensed clinical social worker and psychoanalyst. Thanks so much for being here today. We wanted to bring you here to talk a little bit about your work in trauma and with DID. Right. So for listeners, DID means dissociative identity disorder. That used to be what's called multiple personality disorder. And I think while probably the public understanding is a little bit better, it's typically been pretty sensationalized. Uh, one thing I've noticed that I was curious what, what your thoughts were, Johanna, there's been a resurgence of depictions of people with dissociative identity disorder in the media. Things, shows like Mr. Robot on Netflix, um, movies like Split, Fight Club. I'm curious what you think that means for our culture kind of, or, you know, something along those lines. Right. I'm of split minds about this because I think getting attention to the prevalence of dissociation and dissociative disorders and DID in particular is really important. But because DID is often represented in a sensationalized way, the quality of the depiction really matters. And sometimes I think less is more, not more is better mm -hmm. in that regard. The films that you mentioned all pretty much highlight some of the sensational aspects to the exclusion of more ordinary presentations, which are far less dramatic, though they can wreak sort of internal havoc on individuals' lives are not going to be something someone walking down the street might take note of. The show Unbelievable on Netflix is the exception. I don't know if you guys saw that. I have to say I was really impressed with this show because instead of showing what DID looks like from the outside, the lead character just embodies the subjective experience. And there's no sort of like meta description of it. You just watch her say in an interrogation room, literally shifting states and the police officers doing the interview clearly not at that time knowledgeable about dissociation, calling her a liar or saying that can't be true. You just said this. And the blankness and the confusion and the way the film is able to depict how she goes away in her mind is really well done. But that's an exception. I mm -hmm. think for the rule, there's people can walk away thinking that people with dissociative identity disorder are homicidal, crazy and out to hurt others, which is not the case. You know, definitely there's a kind of a law and order you know, element to it. And there's a perception that um, people with trauma in general kind of have have superpowers, you know, that which is often depicted in, in the shows, but also sometimes because people uh, with with conditions like this will be capable of doing a lot of work in a short period of time in a dissociative state, which to people who don't know what's going on can look, you know, quite different from what it's like on the inside. Right, right. Which is really very inconsistent. And as you said, often uh, kind of misjudging what behavior means. So not everyone who behaves in a contradictory manner, for example, is a hypocrite. Right. Or a liar or right. being manipulative. Right. In fact, that's one of the hard, I think one of the harder experiences of having DID as an adult, the patients will 
be called by loved ones and family members liars or, you know, out to try to confuse or torment their loved ones when that is, that's not the subjective experience. Although the partners may not have any other way of understanding why um, one thing that was true yesterday is no longer true today or held within memory, maybe. Well, I, I think that that makes me, and I'm curious what you think, Farah, uh, psychoanalytically, at least traditionally, like people might ascribe destructive, self-destructive behaviors or relationship interfering behaviors as being masochistic to some extent unconsciously on purpose. Whereas with with trauma and, and dissociative disorders are, you know, often a consequence of early trauma that prevents a coherent sense of self from developing, the self-destructive or relationship interfering or work interfering behaviors, they're not on purpose and they're not wanted. And so calling it masochism is, it's a big misunderstanding. Right. The, the neuroscientific perspective is that those behaviors are for affect regulation, paradoxically, mm -hmm. that self-injury, self-harm is actually a way of the person's internal system re rerouting itself. Although I agree with you that psychoanalytic classical or older versions of psychoanalytic perspectives might say, this is a communication to the therapist of dissociated anger. And it's, it's messages for the therapist when really in a dissociated system, it's an internal message, right? Mm -hmm. It's we've crossed threshold. The only way we know how to come back is through something that creates a, like a hypnotic quality, which is what a lot of self-injury does for patients with dissociative disorders. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and just, if that's okay, and just hear more about kind of how and when you got interested. I know that you've recently done a bit more training and incorporated some other modalities aside from analysis into your practice. You know, what makes someone interested in trauma? And it's sort of like, well, I don't think you choose trauma. Trauma chooses you. So most therapists, and I'll speak for myself, because I can really only speak for myself, um, have some of their own direct lived experience with trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's something that contributes to, you could say psychoanalytically, the repetition compulsion and a desire to work something through. Early life experience for me with loss and medical illness in the family definitely informed my interest in dissociative process. You know, brought me to a sense of how important it is to have that understood as like a, a tool that kids may use, but outgrows its usefulness. And as far as training, I, I think that with trauma, it's really important that you get a salad bar experience and not delve singularly into one thing. I seem to draw support from the trauma literature, the psychoanalytic literature, and um, sometimes even the basic social, clinical, social work skills, direct practice, meaning the person where they're at literature. And you make a hybrid for yourself and you don't stop reading and learning. So would you say that it's sort of come together organically? Or would you say that there's something a little bit different, that the hybrid looks different in every case? Like at the heart of healing is a kind of witnessing, right? And when you witness someone, you can't witness someone the same way or be yourself the same way, like every time. So in a sense, each encounter calls for a different kind of involvement. But having certain scaffolding in your mind in terms of understanding, for example, dissociative phenomenon, like you can't treat trauma if you don't get that. You can't CBT it away. You can't yeah. talk someone into a different place. Yeah. Or medicate someone exactly. to a different place. Yeah. yeah. Um, somewhere along the way, though, I did get really interested in thinking about how talking had its limits 
And that's what led me to, to train in EMDR. I would like to hear a little bit more about EMDR. I, I, I should say I can't really be a full spokesperson as I recently okay. completed the training. So <laughs> it wouldn't be appropriate for me to, okay. to be the expert on it. But I will say that what drew me to it is that with dissociation, you've absented yourself from fully experiencing what's happened to you in one form or another, in one way or another. In order to encounter it, I think you need... There are certain things the environment needs to provide. So a good therapeutic situation, the therapist will witness it with you. Sometimes because it involves the whole body and the central nervous system, there are processes that are happening beyond your control that interfere with your ability to create a narrative that you can tell a therapist that a therapist can see and hear and respond to. Mm -hmm. So so my like rogue and newish understanding of EMDR is that it, it offers a way for a person to access discordant parts of the experience through specific protocol, particularly the bilateral stimulation that uh, bypass some of the obstacles you would encounter by trying to just talk about it directly. Right. So what would that mean if a patient came in and they said, they said, uh, you know, when I was 11 years old, this horrible thing happened and you, you know, you evaluate them and, you know, they have had some traumatic experience. They're having some dissociative symptoms, having some difficulty in a relationship. What would that look like from the patient point of view? What would you actually do? What would, what would a standard EMDR thing be? Is there a particular example of a common trauma you want to use or? There's protocol for every kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, this, that the EMDR community has blossomed into its whole own mm-hmm. entity because I'm figuring out how to incorporate it in what I already consider a psychoanalytic approach. The way I would approach it in someone that really is fully identified as primarily an EMDR therapist is different. Mm-hmm. An EMDR therapist would approach that patient by getting a trauma history and doing something called resourcing, which is building up inner um, tools to use to help regulate affect during the actual desensitizing and processing. So that means what, though? The actual desensitizing and processing would mean what? They would talk about their trauma? They would remember N- it? No, no, no. It's learn. a very, very specific protocol where archaic beliefs about the self, negative beliefs about the self that are irrational, that are associated with the memory, such as with early parent loss, a kid could feel that they're culpable for Mm -hmm. that, even Mm -hmm. though it's irrational. Mm -hmm. So um, the protocol sets it up so that you have, you activate both the left and the right brain. So you get the affect system going and you get the thoughts going associated with the trauma. And then the point of desensitizing is that you have you know, they use the stimulation to have them experience, recall, see where this, their own intrinsic healing system takes them. So it's a process of association. It's actually, it bypasses dissociation because it, it works in such a way that it gets you to just put things together that you'd never put together before. So I can give you an example of this because when you ask a patient about a trauma, they'll typically tell you in either a flat affect way or a disembodied way, mm-hmm. the event. Right. Right. When you do EMDR, what's really interesting is that even though parts of that dissociative experience can enter into the processing part, I've so far experienced learning details I've never heard before when I've just asked outright about an event. And the details that are omitted are actually the protective factors. It's so interesting. All of a sudden, someone's like, you know, at the parent's funeral, at the casket, et cetera, et cetera. And then 
they have a memory of someone holding their hand or they have a memory of what they did right after or they have a memory of how a teacher at school did blah, blah, blah. And these protective features are not in the consciousness of the person when they come in to talk about the trauma. That to me is a really amazing and cool gift of EMDR. And it's not that necessarily negates or takes away the trauma, but it does, it allows it to become integrated in a way that's it's stored somewhere else that's not sequestered often as harmful because adaptive features get recognized. Basically, the main idea is that beliefs about the self are changed. So whatever that negative belief is, is ultimately through a successful EMDR processing reworked to something more adaptive, like it wasn't my fault or I did the best I could. Or But just to get back to what you said, Grant, because I do want to say I don't do that. If someone comes in and tells me they have a trauma, I'm not like setting a protocol mm-hmm. <laughs> because I still very much believe in relational healing and witnessing. And I think that my relationship with the patient and the, the degree to which we're connected is going to be a part of that. With someone that's dissociated, you really want to go super slow. You don't want to go right into trauma processing. There's a reason they're dissociated. So I do a lot of relationship building and get them gradually to become conscious of their dissociation. And I might do EMDR months or years in into the treatment. Right. That's fairly you know, standard with a phase-based approach, meaning right. that you start with safety and then you work your way toward what's more difficult, processing traumatic memories in the kind of middle phase of therapy. My question was kind of like, what's the difference between EMDR and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy? Because oh, okay. the, the evidence is that they're equally effective for trauma. And what interests people with EMDR, it has it's more popular than trauma-focused CBT. It's sort of caught the public interest recently. There's people who report that EMDR sort of will almost miraculously cure them. And there's a message that the bilateral component does something different. And and so far, I haven't seen any sort of scientific evidence that it is better than trauma-focused CBT. I'm just curious, since you did the training yeah. and for listeners, whether whether there's fundamentally any difference. I do think that the bilateral sounds like a little wonky and like, how could it make a huge difference? But experientially, I will tell you, it does. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. Part of the training requires that you experience EMDR yourself. I was skeptical. Like, why would tracking with my eyes mean that I would reach somewhere that I haven't gotten just on my own accord? And I did. And I don't know why it works. I mean, Mm -hmm. Frances Shapiro, who was walking in the woods and developed the technique and noticed that because she was walking in the woods, had to avert her gaze bilaterally. This was Uh, discovered by accident. She was thinking about something distressing, walking in the woods while doing that. And she realized that lessened some of the the capacity to want to not think about it. So she was able to stay with it longer. So something about the bilateral stimulation creates an associational chain. It's like on a highway. It's just going so fast. Like it's like whatever sort of sensor experience you'd have at stopping a thought that you wouldn't even know, but just unconsciously would be happening is interrupted. Mm -hmm. So that that potency, I don't think is recreated in the stage therapy of, of trauma focused CBT, because there isn't something to help with the associational process in this way. And I don't think that they're activating, they're not activating left brain, right brain, right? Intentionally, they're not creating protocol to use both both parts of experience, are they? I'm less familiar with it. No, I don't, I don't think that's um, an explicit part of that. Yeah. The stimulation, right, left, right, left is 
somehow supposed to help with integration across the two halves of the brain, right? <clears throat> like across the corpus callosum. Yeah. When I've worked with people who are spontaneously processing trauma, they will often look up yes. as people do when they imagine things and yeah. look back and forth. That's right. It yeah. happens organically. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, op- I'm open to the possibility. I would, I would just like to see, you know, an fMRI study or something like that, <laughs> you know, brain science. But you're saying subjectively having done the training, something different happened and you made connections that you hadn't made previously. Absolutely. Um, and you're still trying to think about how to fit it in with um, sort of your more uh, traditional insight-oriented therapy. Right. And and so much of that is just really a question, well, a few questions. One of timing and readiness, which is always a question when you're working with trauma. Is this person um, able to incorporate and tolerate what's going to come up, which is what's required of, mm-hmm. of being able to, to desensitize a memory? Or would it be so disruptive to do that or too disruptive to do that? Or do we need to break it into pieces to do it, et cetera? The other thing EMDR does is it really draws attention to the body. Part of the processing and part of the protocol involves scanning and noticing what's happening in the body. Um, and I don't know that trauma-focused CBT does that as much either. I think it's more about what's in the mind, right? I, I believe that embodied experience w- would be a, a part of it. But, okay. Um, yeah. That's more of like a technical question. I, I think it's really hard to do any kind of trauma-oriented therapy if you're not covering all the different types of experiences that people have. But I, I think it, it would be common for therapists to kind of forget about the body. Right. <laughs> Um, I, I always make a point of kind of thinking about bodily experience, and um, that's where sort of trans, uh, tr- counter-transference and transference can come in handy because you notice things in your own body. Um, and when you're talking about people, patients being ready to deal with trauma, it's also, um, I, I think, especially for less experienced therapists, is the therapist ready for the trauma? And a lot of times the blind spots that come up in therapy are because both people are, quote unquote, unconsciously colluding to avoid difficult right. topics or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. It's also not unusual for therapists to get better as therapists over time when they've dealt with their own stuff because now there's a whole topic you can talk about. Right. There's also that experiential repertoire that you know what's on the other side. So the risk is not unknown. (laughs) Right. What therapists call like a coherent narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you've dealt with your own body stuff, then you're more likely to be able to help patients with it, which also can be a source of guilt for less experienced therapists. Right, right. I'm writing this book about the experience of being a survivor sibling. And part of what I'm... um, What does that mean, a survivor sibling? Oh, thanks. Yeah, sorry. So I've interviewed um, psychoanalysts who grew up alongside a medically complex sibling. And I'm looking at sort of early developmental narratives and experiences with that kind of survivorship, psychic survivorship is what I mean, really. Do you mean people who have a sibling who had a, like a medical condition or yes, a, developmental, a developmental disability? Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the condition had to be present from early on, if not right away in the life cycle and have persisting debilitating features, mm-hmm. medical, psychological, physical. So one of the experiences I had in early on as in my, in my teens and analysis was, you know, I was seeing maybe, I guess it was a Freudian analyst in training. And I would sometimes get this body sensation that I was cut off at the knees. Um, And I I couldn't really even put it to words. And I think the few times I tried to, it wasn't material somehow. Like, you know, this analysis hadn't conceived of using the body or understanding the body or embodiment yet. I heard that metaphorically being cut off at the knees. Exactly. It was a metaphor. Well, my brother's in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. and I, I don't think I had, and I don't think I had any other way of bringing that experience in. So my body did for me. Mm -hmm. 
Well, a lot of times survivors in situations like this, you know, they will, will feel guilt also, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a variety of complex feelings. So where are you in the process of writing the book? It must be an incredible experience to put that into words. It is. It is. I, I found EMDR in that process. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you flip back and forth in the pages? I mean, I want, I, you know. Yeah. I know there's a funny thing with the MDR because it it does have an aura around it where it's not fully accepted and yet it it has this allure for people. Um, So I don't mean to be disparaging. What what have you found in in writing, though? Experientially, it was really, really hard. I thought I could write about history and it be in history, and I wasn't prepared for re-encountering it in the writing. And I should say that the idea for the book came to me because I was sleep training my infant son at the time when he would wake up in the middle of the night crying. I had a very particular kind of traumatic experience. Part of my my early years, my brother would have um, life-threatening seizures, mostly overnight when I was zero to six. And so I had this reaction to hearing my son's crying that I couldn't understand because I was like, he's a baby. He's supposed to cry. He probably wants milk. But like my whole body would tense up and I would just like, I'd, um, I kind of had this phrase in my head. It was just like, no, no, no. And then I would really kind of quickly come to. So I didn't lose too much time in that place, but I was like, wow, the potency of those early years are even here now. And so that got me thinking, I can't be alone if I'm um, other survivor siblings must have this in, in kind of encounter. And I wanted to hear from others. And I definitely knew that it was some part of the driving force between my desire to become a therapist. So I decided to make use of that intrusive experience <laughs> and examine it. So and, when you write about it, what do you want readers to understand? And what what have you written about that? Have you written that section yet? Yeah, that's the preface. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I guess I want people to understand that it's never too late to process whatever's happened to you mm-hmm. and that um, going to um, therapy and making space for yourself and your experience is really worth it. In the field in general, I want us as therapists to think about the impact of um, you know medical issues in the family, but sibling experience in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is literature, and I'm also interested in this topically, uh, narratively as well, of early parent loss, but there's not that much about sibling and sibling encounters, especially around loss. What is present is, is around envy competition and the assumption of evenness and capacity. I think there's one book that was written a decade or two ago yes. called The Other One or the something. The Normal One. The Normal One. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, your book sounds like a, a follow-up or a, not not a follow-up, but your, your take on it, which I'm sure has a lot of unique elements to offer. That's right. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's a follow-up. Jeannie Schaefer wrote that book and she interviews siblings with difficult sibling relationships in general. So it's not it's not focused on medically complex um, issues in the family. Oh, that's interesting. I and, didn't know that. Yeah. So you could have like a, a really difficult, strained relationship with a sibling or a brother with cerebral palsy and be in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And my book really is focusing on a very particular sect of survivorship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Solomon has an interesting book, Have you, you know, Far From the Tree. I sure do. Which yeah. is mainly about parents with children with differences. Right. Uh, and... You know, for a lot of parents, I think, at least the ones who respond with resilience, 
you know, having a child with a significant challenge can be an incredible growth experience as well as, you know, a process of grief. Of course, you imagine your children will be different than they are under the best of circumstances. For siblings with difficulties like that, you you don't have that imperative uh, to be there for them as a parent. Uh, And it it can kind of... um, become a defining feature of your life as an adolescent, for example, because you're the the kid who has that sibling or you're the kid who has that secret uh, or whatever it is. And it, it, it makes me curious about how you approach the uh, question of identity. Right. Because I think anyone who grows up with adversity has to integrate it into their identity in order to be full and authentic human beings. That's right. And that's where a dissociative process plays a part because um, actually one of the pathways to relatedness among you know, a survivor sibling and a disabled sibling is kind of like parenting or caretaking. Mm-hmm. It's one of the only pathways since language and other areas are often unshared. So it creates real complications in terms of the psychic structure of the survivor. Like they're a sibling, but they're not total. They don't have all the privileges of being a sibling, but they have the responsibilities of more than a sibling. But they, you know, what do you mean by psychic structure? Like how they negotiate a sense of themselves and their relationships in their inner world. Mm hmm then psychic structures would determine how a person responds in different situations. And particularly if they don't understand what's going on mentally, they're likely to, say, repeat patterns that aren't optimal. Sure. That's right, Grant. But I would say it's sort of like a perceptual apparatus. And most survivors of any kind, survivors in general, by definition, develop a dissociative perceptual apparatus. Like the lens. The lens. The filter. Where they're able mm-hmm. to notice and experience certain parts of themselves and others, and where they have to omit and disidentify or not notice or not absorb other aspects. And that will infiltrate all relatedness beyond the original situation that elicits it. I, w- I want to ask if you have like an example of that. Like if if I grew up with a disabled sibling, then what would I see in people close to me and what would I miss? I'm very careful in this book to not say, if you have this, this will happen. Not too prescriptive. Yeah, because I think that there's more than one way to survive. There is more than one way to survive. What often happens, or he made this maybe an example I can give, is that one doesn't notice their own disabled selves or their own limitations because there's such pressure on identifying with ability and Mm -hmm. performance. And there isn't a space to work out struggle, maybe with parents. Parents have to work out struggle with the disabled child. So, you know, so what does that look like? Well, it might look like a therapist who has trouble confronting or addressing or dealing with patients who present in challenging ways. They might absorb responsibility or or disavow feeling a sense of difficulty doing the work. Mm -hmm. Perfectionism. They also might be more compassionate. It all depends on how much they've worked out the dissociation stuff. That's really the premise of the book. Right. You'd, you'd want to watch out for being like overly compassionate. Right. right. That's right. as defensive yeah. as yeah. being not compassionate. It's somewhere in yeah. the middle. Right? Because we were all therapists here. So we, we know there's a risk of being a compulsive caregiver. That's right. Right. You want to, you want to remain curious about what motivates your caretaking and also recognize that there's not a lot of help for discordant feelings around the family circumstance. So what do you do as an adult with your discordant feelings? You mean something like in the family growing up, if you were the kid who didn't have the disability, for example, and you had a problem in school with a test, you might 
just keep it to yourself. And solve it on your own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't feel like you deserve to get attention and, and the bandwidth might not be there. I know that doesn't apply to everyone, but right. that might be one way that it comes up. You, On one hand, you can feel proud that you don't have these problems and lucky maybe um, and afraid that something bad will happen. You might not be aware of it fully. But on the other hand, like you may not be able to get the attention you need. That's right. And then you don't feel like you deserve to feel resentful. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And you're not allowed to express negative feelings. And then therapy. Like, yeah, but I would put them in self-state language and say Mm -hmm. part of the self might feel lucky. A part of the self might feel actually like really unlucky because they have to always feel lucky. (laughs) A part of the self might have no way of using their aggression, which was a pretty consistent theme. Aggression feels deadly. There's actual limitations. So what are you supposed to do with that? That could overlap with other experiences like with a parental. (laughs) It gets very, it gets very frightening, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my biggest fears, though, is that it could be misheard as blaming or assigning, um, yeah, assigning blame to parents in the situation as if there's other ways of going through it. I mean, parents have their own dissociative process to work out around this development. So I'm, I'm trying to be really careful of telling a story or telling the stories of what might or could happen, but not really singling anyone or anything out. It's just an ambiguous loss that complicates the family narrative and has consequences on everyone's psychic structure. People people look for a scapegoat. Yeah. I, I remember I came up with a joke a few years ago about therapy, which was after years of successful therapy, I finally stopped blaming my parents for everything that happened to me as a kid. Now I, gra- I blame my, my grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> But you can see Wait there's like bring your great grandparents. Right, there's no well, there's no first cause. Then then it kind of becomes theological. This is really fascinating and enlightening, and I'm thrilled that you're writing a book about it because I myself have a great interest in family dynamics and find that it does not come up nearly enough. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it is like a new frontier, siblings. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't be. They've been around forever, but it kind of is, you know, mm-hmm. and especially when we talk about attachment and like the caregiving system, like the the, the presence or absence of others it has a huge effect on attachment. Right. It's kind of right. like we have to account for this, you know. Traditionally, people have focused on the parents. Right. Though, you know, in relational psychoanalysis, there's been a lot of attention to systems and family systems, but it tends to focus on parental relationships. And and people have funny ideas about siblings. They're aware of things you said earlier, like competition. Um, There's an idea that, you know, the older sibling has more responsibility. The middle sibling gets forgotten. The the youngest sibling has all the freedom. Then there's cultural differences. You know, there's a lot of ideas about that. And then parents will say things. I was actually speaking to not not a not a patient but someone else today who said well you know the oldest my oldest child when they learned to drive we were terrified and then the other two we just got numb right right and, and it, it says something because how do you think about stuff that is really troubling I mean um, and we're facing this problem sort of collectively because the you know not to get too global but you know there's scary stuff in the news and there's climate change and the world the world is you know we don't know what's going to happen and if you disengage from disturbing ideas you can't deal with them well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's dissociation right it's great when you're a kid and you can tune out but 
when you grow up, you have to pay your bills and, you know. Well, and let's face it, if those kids that tune out actually would rather have an involved and attuned caregiver. So it, it, it's, it's maybe life-saving, but it's nobody chooses dissociation. I think that's, that's the bottom line. Well, the choice, if there is uh, an element of choice, it's in the context of not having other choices. Uh-huh. At least right. in so my it's kind of a default. Yeah, yeah which, I think, I mean, I know yeah. people who have consciously chosen dissociation. It's because you don't have a secure attachment figure. Right. Or you can't access them if you happen to be very dismissive. Really, that's what, what I mean, yeah. right? Nobody yeah, chooses an insecure yeah, yeah. or disorganized environment. You don't choose your parents, right? You don't choose your family. You don't choose where you're born. Well, you we could pass right? it past parents. You don't choose your legacy, the inheritance yeah. of unconscious stuff from all the generations. Right. You know, right. a lot of trauma patients actually are carrying the trauma of their parents or their parents' oh, parents yeah. and yeah. not their own. And yeah. they have no idea why they're so depressed or why life feels one-dimensional or why relationships always go awry at point. X. Yeah. Even epigenetically, they, mm-hmm. you can be carrying genetic effects from your ancestors. And a lot of clinicians aren't trained to ask about the family history. You develop a, you develop a sense of it. And, and also when people come from certain places, you, you know that where their families came from, there was war. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of know objectively that to ask about it historically, like you're saying, it's pretty much ubiquitous. Anyone right. who came to America in the last couple hundred years came from somewhere. But also maybe it could be dissociation inherited genetically, right? right? An example of that, that we reference it as loss or that thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that being the inheritance. This is, it's tricky the way language is used. And it's really interesting because there's polite ways of talking and then there's impolite. And, you know, some people, they, they think that it's good to be honest all the time, quote unquote, honest. And I always it, try to cure that quickly. You, you cure that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's different self states, right? Like right. you're saying, like part of me wants to be really um, candid and part of me wants to be more diplomatic. The the categories we put people in can both empower them and also silence them. So if you tell someone how sweet they are, it makes me think of sexism. Like, right. you know, you're so sweet. You know, why don't you smile more? <laughs> right. um, or you're being, you know, um, the pejorative term that that people use to describe women who are assertive. Bossy. Elizabeth Wurzel just passed this week and one of her books is... By that name. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Melanie Klein's daughter was giving a talk about her work with borderline patients that I read recently for a talk I'm preparing. And the all-male audience, analytic audience at the end said, wow, that was so sweet. Your sympathetic (laughs) nature just elicits a nice positive transference. Right, right. And she she would be thrilled, I'm sure, to be referred to as Melanie Klein's daughter. Is that her her birth (laughs) certificate. Just just put put Melanie Klein's daughter down for her name. All right. Truth be told, I'm dyslexic and I have trouble pronouncing (laughs) names. Melita is her first name. I'm not going to try to say her last name. Starts with an S. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know her name anyway, but you know, but, but it's an interesting thing. Is that, is that like a repetition of something, an enactment or you know, okay, I, I, I can't remember her name. Well, I think it's actually me just not wanting to feel ashamed at mispronouncing it, imagining someone knows how to say it right if I say it wrong. But it is also interesting that I would use a phallic representation of her mother to introduce her. So I don't know. Maybe there's both stuff there happening. Right. I usually just say it wrong. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, you know, the word um, quixotic. 
uh-huh. you know, um, from Don Quixote, mm-hmm. I usually say chaotic, which no one gets. Right. I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a partner who can translate my mispronunciations rather easily. <laughs> what do you guys think about trauma? Where are you in your journey in treating trauma? I think for a long time, I hid behind the fact that I was pretty new to practice and that I had started with people relatively recently. Mm -hmm. So as I'm moving through into that second phase with patients, I see more and more coming up. I feel my own awareness kind of growing, Mm -hmm. um, but still looking for the tools and the scaffolding. One thing that was really interesting was taking a course, an analytic course in development. Right. Because if something felt very adolescent to me or if I wasn't able to put my finger on it, you know, there was something that happened during latency and now... I don't know. I think I look at things a little bit differently, but I don't feel totally equipped. And that's probably why I work so closely with you. But I think the day you feel totally equipped to deal with trauma, you are no longer dealing with trauma because that's not, I mean, no matter where you are on the journey, that that attitude is one defensively excluding what is not known. You can't possibly know it all. And I think you're um, right. It's it's really important to have a good grasp on what should happen mm-hmm. developmentally in life. Right. <laughs> to yeah. know that to know what to look for when it hasn't. You yeah. know. I mean, so much of like lowercase relational developmental trauma is the absence of something happening that might have been profitable. That's the Winnicott quote, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's not these big moments of terror. It's misattunement, chronic misattunement, or chronic right. shame. Right. Chronic emotional neglect. Right. Or even in an infancy, not having someone help you mark transitions between states and not helping build like a highway with like lots of roads Mm -hmm. that intersect so that you can jump from hungry to angry to interested to bored to sleepy without feeling like you're a completely different person or a stranger onto yourself. Right. Well, being left alone by the tip stereotypically, the the mother, the primary caregiver, when a kid has an experience which they can't make sense of, and then the caregiver comes in and says, oh, hungry and now I fed you and now it's time for a nap. And so the person marking develops a a sense of continuity over time of switching from one state to the next Mm -hmm. and through the language and and embody the body contact with the mother, they develop a sense of self, which is more cohesive. That's right. That's right. And also a belief that they could be known. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. huge. I mean, how much do you hear in like adult patients, this idea? Yeah. There are so many adult patients are dating a fantasized version of themselves and the other person because they haven't had this experience of being known. They don't know what it is to exist in the mind of the other person as they are, as they shift through states, yeah. <laughs> you know? One of the one of the hot topics in therapy nowadays is along these lines is mentalization-based right. therapy, which really focuses on developing that kind of curious containment and imagining and and speaking, symbolizing self-representations right. and the mind of the other person uh, in, in the context of communicating together. Right. Uh, and so that creates um, another ca- like buzz phrase would be like an intersubjective way of relating. Totally. Where there's room for different perspectives and they don't have to clash and become conflictual. And so something like contradiction is fine. It's health, actually, from a relational perspective, as I understand it. 
Right. The toleration of contradiction is health. Right. With extreme dissociation, you don't even have conflict because the person doesn't encounter the contradiction. Right. They say it's am, it's am, it's ambig, ambiguous or ambivalent, pre-conflictual. But right. I, I, you know, that question about trauma, I think, and dissociation, I think it's really um, a big problem for our species. Because we're alluding to individuals coming from traumatic backgrounds and, you know, how that affects the family. But as as a people uh, at a collective level, yeah, there's really not much room for for negotiating conflict. Um, Though I guess you could make a counter argument and you could say things could be way, way worse. No, I don't want to make that argument. I want to to tell you I share that concern. Mm -hmm. But what I do to settle myself is think, well, the people I'm working with to help build a capacity to bear conflict are also voters mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. civic citizens who may then be able to bring a more integrated sense of self and presence into our, you know, world polity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or else it's too, too depressing and frightening. What, um, what should people do? At the risk of sounding uh, prescriptive, the first thing is do your own work. Mm-hmm. You have to have an experience of your own depth treatment working out, whatever your history is. You can't really take someone somewhere or be brave enough to encourage them to go there if you haven't been there yourself. But I wouldn't stop at your own treatment. I would say that good supervision is critical because if you treat trauma, you're going to be engaged and enlisted in feeling and experiencing and encountering a lot of things. And it can get really disorienting. So having a third space, if you want to use that metaphor of attachment, if the supervisor is like the parent to help mentalize and mark what may be happening is really organizing for the therapist who's devoted to doing trauma work. Third thing is community. Like you guys are awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Hope we can get dinner after this. Um, but there are also really great organizations. And I mean, I never say this, but thank God for the internet for this. Mm-hmm. You know, you can talk to people at the International Study for the Treatment of Trauma and Dissociation. You can get on the Dissociative Disorders Listserv. You can get on Pods has a listserv in, in the UK. So there's lots of communities of like-minded or therapists committed to working with trauma that you can join and feel less alone in, in doing the work. Also, just never stop learning. I feel like I don't have any more room on my bookshelf, so I don't know what the plan is, but I can't stop buying books. But I think it's really important because what we know changes and can change pretty quickly in this field, at least in trauma, not in psychoanalysis. That's a glacial piece. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of strength. There's a lot of strength in in getting through these things, and it's important always to remember that trauma isn't the whole story. And in fact, you you get that strength and resilience when trauma becomes part of your story, That's and then right. it st- sort of stops being traumatic. Right. Well, it stops also defining you as singularly the thing about you. Yeah. As uh, you said earlier, authenticity is where it's at. Mm-hmm. You get to be an authentic person. Right. An integrated person. Yeah. If you're a jerk, you can right. be a jerk and <laughs> feel good about yeah. it. <laughs> Not so ashamed. On that note, thank you so, so much for being here today. And I feel like this was, I mean, I learned a lot. I think listeners will too. Yes. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 